uh, I would invite you, if you would, to open to Isaiah chapter 46 with me. Isaiah chapter 46. We're going to be speaking this morning about exalting the triune God. At Fellowship Bible Church, where I am the teaching pastor, we uh, kind of wrap our ministry up in uh, sort of four uh, different things, if you will, that are uh, all kind of put together. Uh, We seek to exalt the triune God, uh, to edify and equip believers, and to evangelize the lost. And I want us to zoom in on that first uh, one this morning, that exalting of the triune God as we Worship our Lord in the Word together this morning, and I think Isaiah 46 particularly uh, sets up some some really nice um, language for us around that idea of what it means to exalt the triune God. If you're able to, would you please stand with me this morning out of honor for the Word of God? We're going to read sort of in the middle of this uh, chapter together this morning, Isaiah 46, uh, verses 8 through 11 together, and uh, I'll read aloud as you follow along. I'll be uh, reading from the ESV. The Lord says, remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning And from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. That is the word of God. May it bless your uh, soul today. As you've heard it read aloud, you may be seated, and would you join me once again in prayer? Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather in your name and to to worship you, Lord, in song and in giving and in fellowship and now in the word. And we pray that you would be with us as we seek to do this, Lord. Illuminate our minds by your Holy Spirit as we hear your word taught this morning. Lord, continue to teach me through this passage as I seek to teach others. And, And I pray, Lord, that you would get me out of the way and, Lord, humble me this morning even as I... Uh, attempt to take your, your breathed word and exposit it. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine, if you would, a, a grandfather who knows that he will not live to see the wedding and the subsequent marriage life of his granddaughter. Setting out to do his best to encourage her, he looks ahead to what could be He sees all the potential joys, delights, pleasures, and and problems that she could face. And imagine that he takes all of this and he he writes it in a letter that is sealed and, and signed with instructions, do not open until wedding day. Upon opening it and and reading it on her wedding day, she sees some of the value within. But as time and life move on, she experiences some of the goodness and difficulties that come, she grows in understanding and appreciation of what her grandfather wrote to her. She is surprised to find an exactness to his writing that comes so close to what she and her husband and her children have experienced. This treasure helps her through those times and helps her to rely on the truths her 
grandfather has written to her. I've taken a small illustration from Bob Chisholm's commentary on the book of Isaiah and expanded it in my own words. That's what you just heard. And as as Chisholm argues in his book, we can view the, the latter half of the entire prophecy of Isaiah in this way. He has rightly directed us to the idea of Uh, The latter half of Isaiah being this sort of a forward looking of the future of Israel. Indeed, this is a prophecy uh, about 150 years into Israel's future. It's what will happen to Israel. Leading up to chapter 46, uh, uh, God through Isaiah is prophesying of Israel's exile. The time when Israel would be taken into Babylonian captivity. Then directly before our chapter, God tells of how he will use a pagan king named Cyrus, to conquer Babylon and, and to free Israel. And in the midst of this prophecy, we will see in our chapter the call of God to all of Israel to remember that He is the one true God, the only one worthy of exaltation and worship. As Isaiah writes to Israel, that they should remember these things as one who writes before any of these events happen. So we too, as we look back and recognize some of these same tendencies within our hearts and lives, and also realize the needed correction that the Lord through Israel, or through Isaiah, forgive me, gives. So uh, this morning I want us to see three realities of our need to exalt the triune God. Three realities of our need to exalt the triune God. The first is this. Uh, The first need for us to exalt a triune God is is this. We are prone to worship idols, and this is folly. We are prone to worship idols, and this is folly. Look with me, if you would, at the first couple of verses of Isaiah 46. Isaiah writes, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock." These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Well, maybe the first question that comes to your mind as we begin this is, who in the world are Belle and Nebo? Sounds like a Disney movie. Uh, Belle and Nebo, who is this? Well, Belle and Nebo um, were gods of the Babylonians. They were likely the patron gods of the Babylonians, uh, the highest order of gods in the Babylonian culture. Bel is another name for Baal, and Nebo is his son. And so these are kind of top-tier gods in the, in the Babylonian culture. Notice, however, as, as God speaks through the prophet Isaiah of these little g-gods, what he has to say about them. There's a problem here. As we even just get into a couple of the first couple of words here. They're bowing down, it says. It says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. What's the problem? (laughs) They cannot even hold themselves up. What kind of a God is a God who cannot hold himself up? It is no God. It is a nothing In fact, these so-called gods are nothing more than burdens for the backs of beasts, is what Isaiah says. 
And you get the idea that these are unnecessary burdens. These things it says at the end of verse 1 that you carry are born as burdens on, on weary beasts. These so-called gods are, are nothing more than, than something for the backs of pack mules. And these are unnecessary burdens. What good are these gods if they cannot save? In fact, they are just... They're just burdens that are to be what? Dragged into captivity. Look at what it says. They stoop and they bow down together. They cannot save the burden but themselves go into captivity. You get this idea of as Israel is going to be going into captivity and their their issue with idolatry and their issue with um, bowing down to foreign idols that you can picture them just dragging these idols into captivity. Their captivity. The backs of their beasts are bearing these heavy weighted idols into captivity. And God is mocking. And he is saying, where are they? Are these idols, these little puny gods going to save you? No, you're having to bear them into my punishment for you. We find often that the true God, the God of Israel, who is known by the name Yahweh, the I Am, the ever-existing one, mocks false gods. When the prophets of Baal do not get an answer from Baal in 1 Kings 18.27, Elijah mocks them. You may recall this as you've studied the scriptures. He says to these prophets who are trying to to get Baal to do things for them, A cry aloud, for he, that is Baal, is a god. And he's mocking them. Where is your God? Cry aloud, for he, Baal, is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. In my day, we would say, Elijah's mocking the snot out of him. (laughs) He's saying, where is your God? Perhaps he's in the bathroom. Perhaps he is on a journey, or he is asleep and he needs to be awakened. What is he saying, ultimately? Baal is no God. Here in our text, it's possible that Isaiah is predicting that the Israelites will give in to this kind of idol worship. And we know from the Old Testament, if you studied the Old Testament uh, much at all, that this is their pattern, the cyclical pattern of, 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 of bowing down to foreign gods, the syncretism, this intermarrying and then worshiping the false gods of these foreign nations around them. And, and, and God promised them in uh, his law to them, in his promises to them, hey, if you obey me, uh, you can uh, receive all the blessings that come with obedience. But if you disobey me and you start uh, uh, bowing down to these foreign gods, you will be destroyed. And this is the pattern of Israel. And this is what Isaiah is pointing to. What good will it do them to worship the gods of Babylon? They're just burdens to beasts. These gods are, are brought into captivity and they are utterly unable to save them. God sets himself completely apart from these so-called gods by reminding Israel of how he has been faithful to them. Look at verses 3 and 4. After mocking these false gods through Isaiah, God says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, 
Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. What does the Lord say to Israel? He says to them, I have borne you from birth. I have carried you from birth. God is the one who birthed Israel through Abraham and has carried them literally. If you study the Old Testament closely, you know the the promised seed is also being carried by God through Israel. There's this this promise of of salvation through one who would come through Israel and and Israel themselves have been born. They have been carried by God. He has been their bearer. Even in their old age, he is the same and the one who bears them. Notice the progression here as he says, I have made, that is, the Lord is the creator of the universe. Who has control over all things? Who has control over who he will bear? It is the Lord. He is the creator of of the universe. I will bear. I will carry you. I will bring sustenance to you. I will carry you out. I will save and redeem you. And what did the Lord do? He took them out of the slavery of Egypt, did he not? And that is a foreshadowing, a type of the way that he would free them also through the Messiah who was to come. You see, their burdens had been lifted by him. Yahweh God is the one who lifts and carries them and carries us. Unlike these other gods who can do nothing but be burdens on your backs as you carry them into captivity, God says to Israel, I will save. I will redeem. And to this, God asks in verse 5. He kind of mocks these false gods, and he says, here's who I am. And then in verse 5, he says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? To whom can Yahweh be compared? Who is equal to the God of Israel? The anticipated answer, indeed the correct answer, is no one. There is none who is like our God. And the folly of this is seen in verses 6 and 7. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save them from this trouble. Do you see this? What folly this is. Can you, can you picture this? What does a person do to, to make this idol to bow down? They, they rummage around in their, in their belongings. They say, ah, here's some gold. I will take this gold or this silver to the silversmith and, and, and I will bring it to them and they will fashion for me a god. And once I have my, my little god, what do I do? I go take it from the one who created it, man creating God, and I will carry it, I will bear it to my house, and and I will place it up upon the mantle, and there it sits. My little God, 
my little golden silver idol. It sits there. And we begin to see this sort of turnabout mocking again. Why does it sit there? Because it can't move. Why, why does it need to be created? Because it is no God. Why does it need to be born to my house? Why does it need to be placed upon a mantle? And why does it sit there? Why can't it be created of its own volition and mysteriously float and appear on my mantle and move about or answer me when I cry to it? Because it is no God. It is no God. And then what does someone do? They bow down to it and say, this is my God. This thing that I rummaged around in my belongings and brought to the goldsmith and he fashioned for me and I bore it to my house and I put it up on my mantle, I bow down to it. This is my God. They bear it on their backs and set it up in a prominent place and what does it do? It stands there. When you ask it to rescue you, what does it do? Absolutely nothing. I don't know if you've had the occasion to be in a place where there are literal idols uh, to which people are bowing down. I have had that opportunity. I was in London in 2007, and uh, as a part of our trip there, we went into a Hindu mandir, which is a, a Hindu temple. And uh, we were kind of sitting in the back and sort of observing what was going on there. And uh, it was really a sad scene because people were going to this, this, this pantheon of idols, and there were, I don't know if I had to guess, maybe 40 or 50 idols behind this wall very multicolored, very beautiful. Um, you understand sort of maybe the attraction to that because there's something you can see and something you can touch or whatever it might be. But it was really sad because people were taking food and they were taking milk and they were putting the, placing the food up on the, the wall. They were pouring the milk down in front of these idols. And, and then someone came to us and, and they said, you must... Stand like this if you're going to be in here. And you must bow down if you're going to be in here. You see, they didn't want us to just observe. They said we had to bow down. I turned to uh, the guy who was helping lead our trip and I said, I said, Marcus, I don't bow down to any God, right? <laughs> we beat feet. We got out of there. But as we were going out, the, the most sad and revealing thing that I've ever seen about idol worship, I, I saw in that moment as we were fleeing <laughs> that temple. There was literally a woman down on her hands and knees cleaning up the offering. Washing away the milk that had been dumped out there for these gods. And I thought, kind of a useless god can't even clean up after itself when it's done eating. This woman is cleaning up after the so-called god. What use is there? What help is this kind of a God going to give? Dear ones, before we are quick to judge the Babylonians or the Hindus or any others that bow down to false idols, are we too not guilty of idolatry? And often when we even kind of bring this topic up, we immediately want to talk about materialism. And, and though this is potential, it leaves out so much more of our lives that, that become idolatrous to us. The re reality is, is that we are prone to the idolatry of materialism. We're not bowing down to idols made of wood and gold, though we may be bowing down to idols of silicon and metal. 
But the question is, not what is it we are bowing down to, but what is the heart behind idolatry? If we stick merely to materialism, it's easy for someone to check it off their list and say, nope, that doesn't pertain to me. See, I, I, I drive a, a 1985 you know, Dodge Dart or what I don't know. So materialism doesn't apply to me. It's too easy to kind of check it off the list and say, uh, if we just keep it to materialism, say, no, that's, that's not me. And then go on worshiping something else in your heart. So what are some of the idols that can exist in our hearts? Can we just put it simply, anything that we find more satisfying or fulfilling than the God who gave it to us? Because we can't deny that God has given us good gifts. And we ought to thank Him and give glory to Him for those good gifts. But anytime we take those good gifts and we put them above the giver, we are worshiping something other than God. God is the giver of good gifts. And we should thank and worship Him for that, but we should not worship those things. Anything that we are seeking to satisfy us outside of the bounds for which God has assigned it for satisfaction And we are meant to enjoy the good gifts God has given us, but in a way that he means for us to enjoy it, and always to the praise of his glory. That is to say, all that God has given us is meant to be enjoyed in the way that he meant it so that we would exalt him in that good gift. Do you see? Do you you get it? That's how idolatry works in our hearts. God, I know that you said this about food, about family, about sex, about money, about possessions. But I'm going to go my own way. Because I think in that I can find more joy and more satisfaction and more fulfillment than in your way, God. Dear ones, that's idolatry. And I'm guilty of it and you're guilty of it as well. As John Piper has written, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. This also includes what we think about when we think about who God is. Our our view of God needs to be biblically informed. So if we're going to say, this is who God is, we need to make sure that we're going to God's Word to understand what He has said about who He is. So that when we say, God is most glorified in me when I'm most satisfied in Him, I understand what He has asked of me in regard to obedience to Him. Not seeking to earn favor with Him, because that favor is earned, praise the Lord, through Jesus Christ. But to enjoy life as He meant it to be enjoyed. Otherwise, we're worshiping idols. A.W. Tozer begins his most famous book, The Knowledge of the Holy, with this phrase, What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That is a striking statement. I'm I'm sure uh, around here you've heard that before. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our view of God needs to be biblically informed. And as we look at the scope of Scripture, we know that God is the great three-in-one. If we are to worship Him as He is, we are to exalt Him as God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Our view of God needs to be biblically informed. This then leads us to our second point. We must remember the greatness of the true God and worship Him. We must 
remember the greatness of the true God and worship him in verses 8 through 11. And this is what we read in our, our scripture reading here. Isaiah begins with the general affirmation to remember and stand firm that transgressors are to recall these things to mind. The threefold admonition to remember, recall, remember is an overt way of telling them this is important. Don't forget it. Think on these truths. Meditate on these truths about who God is and what he has done. Remember, verse 8 says, this, and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. This is what he tells them to recall. What is it that we're to remember? We're to remember that God is God and there is no other God. There is none like him. The Old Testament drives us to creation, first of all. God is the creator. There's a Trinitarian implication in creation. Let us make man in our image, correct? Israel would recall God's promises to Abraham, as should we. Israel should recall the deliverance from Egypt. God is a redeeming God. He, he saves his people. And if they recall the law of Moses, they would remember that it points them to God's holiness. God is a holy God who requires holiness from his people. In the New Testament era, we see not only the Old Testament, but the, the trajectory of the Old Testament, its aim and its fulfillments. Jesus, the Messiah to come, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and, and promises. Uh, the one who actually literally fulfills all the law and the prophets is Christ Jesus. The redemption of mankind is Trinitarian and explicitly so. It's the plan of the Father that is worked out uh, by the Spirit through the Son. So we see that Trinitarian praise that comes together in fullness in the, in the New Testament. If we are in Christ, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and He is comforting us and convicting us and teaching us through the Word of God. And all of this remembering and recalling should drive us to the exaltation of the God that is described in verses 9 and 10. So he's saying, remember this, stand firm, recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And, and what is God like? He, he, he says, remember these things, and then he describes who he is. Who am I? I am the one who, verse 10 I declare the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I am God and there is no other. We can do nothing but worship the God who is revealed in scriptures if we are in him because there is none to compare to him. The construction here is interesting. We might expect that God would use his proper name, Yahweh, and, and that's what we see in the scripture. We see L-O-R-D in all caps, Lord in all caps. It's a description of uh, the word Yahweh, I am, the ever-existing one. But that's not the word that is used here. The word for God that's used here is the word L. So we do see that word Yahweh used in, in chapter 45, which is a partner chapter to this chapter. But why does God use the word L here instead of his proper name, Yahweh? Well, it seems this is used to compare him to the other lowercase L's, E-L-S. The L's, right? L is a generic word for God and any God. And the God of Israel is not like any of these pagan gods. So the, the idea seems to be here, there is no other L but the L of Israel. There is no other God 
but the God of Israel. What sets our God apart from the false gods of the pagans is not just what he has done in history, but that he has ordained all that has happened. It's not just, well, he is the only God because he is a better God, because look at these things he has done. No, he has ordained what has happened. Look at what it says again, declaring the end from the beginning. Not just knowing the end from the beginning, but declaring it. He knows the end of the story before it even gets started. And he has planned it thus. That's how we're to understand that. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Now listen to this saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Who is the God of the Bible? Who is the God of Israel? Who is the God that we worship today? He is the God whose plan cannot be thwarted. Dear ones, take comfort in that. Do we fail sometimes? Do we falter? Do we sometimes lift up things that are good gifts from God and and worship them? Yes, we do. But God is not surprised. God is not shocked. He has a plan, and we cannot thwart that plan. That doesn't mean we can run around doing whatever we want to do. Like, oh, I'm not going to mess up God's plan. doesn't mean it's not going to mess you up. There are consequences to sin. But as those who worship the holy, righteous, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God, when we fall short, His grace and His mercy is new to us every morning, and we cannot mess up his plan. Don't forget who God is, is what the author is telling us. Not only this, he uh, tells us that from ancient times he has planned things that have not yet come to pass. In his commentary on Isaiah, Matyer says, God does not await the turn of events and then wonder what to do about them. They all emerge in order on the stage of history at the dictate of his word. And this demands the kind of statement we see from God in verse 10 where he says his counsel will stand. There is nothing that God has planned that will not come to pass. There is no sense in which God's hands are tied. And the example that he gives here is, is kind of born out of, of, of Isaiah 45, which is that this bird of prey that, he, that he's bringing is, is one who will uh, come about and, and will uh, come from a, a far country and will bring to pass what he has purposed him to do. And that's Cyrus. This is a, another prediction about Cyrus coming. Cyrus will believe that what he is doing is of his own free will, God is using it. He's ordaining the future actions of Cyrus to accomplish his purposes 150 years before Cyrus is even on the scene. And this is where we see God working with man, not that man has any part to play other than God just allowing it to happen. But this is where we can see God declaring, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass, verse 11 says. I have purpose and I will do it. Who is at the center of all history? It is God. It is God. And for this we must worship Him. It is about His plan and His purposes for His glory. And and the beautiful thing about that is not like, oh, you know, uh, so it's all about God. And, and, you know, we kind of get this sort of complex about God being selfish, which is totally wrong because He deserves glory and worship. What's so amazing is that He would include us in any of that. That he would say, 
and I want you to be the ones who worship. God's plan is to ultimately glorify himself. He has done this through revealing himself to mankind from creation to the fall, to the redemption through Jesus Christ, to the consummation of all things for the glory of his name. Why do we exalt the triune God? Why should we, as the body of Christ, seek to worship the God of the Bible? Not just when we gather on Sunday, but with every day of our lives, it is because it is all about him. It is all about him. Far too long, the evangelical church has made it all about man. And, and, and we've, we've seen this turn, so I'm so thankful for this, to say, no, it's all about God and, and glory to God that he includes us at all. Praise his name. Does God love you? The question may come up. Yes, he loves you. And he has shown grace to the unbeliever by not wiping you out. And he has shown ultimate grace to the believer by rescuing you, rescuing you from condemnation. God shows his grace every day to those who reject and rebel against him by allowing them another day on his planet. And maybe you're here today and and you're like, well, I don't like that idea of God. Can I just challenge you? Where does your idea of God come from? Does it come from your own mind? Because whatever you think about God is the most important thing about you. Or do you allow his word to speak into your heart? You say, Jason, I have some real troubles with the Word of God. There's some things that seem inconsistent and things that just seem really out of place for what you would say your God, who your God is. Well, let me just challenge you to come and speak with me or speak with one of the pastors here at Bethany this morning and, and let us seek to show you from the Word of God that there are no inconsistencies, that God's Word is true. You may or may not believe us, but it gives us an opportunity to not defend the scriptures, but show you truth from the word of God. You say, well, if, if it's all about God and his glory, doesn't this make him some sort of a monster? I think if we begin with man and our fallen mind, if we ignore what God has revealed about himself, I can see that. If that's where we start. But if we start with God at the center, the one who is actually the one who's being offended, then no. He is the perfect one who has the right to condemn based on his justice and his holiness. And it is beautiful and majestic and glorious that he would snatch any of us from that stream of condemnation through Jesus Christ and make us his own. Which leads me to my final point. Thirdly, the true God is the only one who can save. And for this, we must worship him. Look at verses 12 and 13. After God has said, I have purpose and I will do what my will Uh, I have set out to do, I will accomplish it. Listen to what he is accomplishing. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. He kind of puts us in our place, right? (laughs) He says, I know your heart. I know where you are. You are rebellious people. You are rejecting me. You, you, You worship the things that I have given you as good gifts. But listen to me. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. Listen to the grace and the mercy here. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. See, the beauty of the grace and the mercy of the God who has every right to condemn us for our rebellion against him. When we are far from righteousness, he says, I bring my righteousness near to you it's God's action God's movement this is the grace of God 
who are the stubborn of heart? Who are these who are far from righteousness? In our context, it's the stubborn children of Israel. In the context of Scripture, in, in total, it is mankind. We are far from righteousness in, in that we are living as we desire. We are the condemned who do not believe until God brings his righteousness near to us. There is no doubt that there are messianic overtones in this chapter of Isaiah. From the time of the fall, God had proclaimed the coming of the seed of the woman who would later be seen as the seed of Abraham through whom the whole earth would be blessed. And here Isaiah continues to add his prophecies about this coming salvation. Where does salvation come from? Do you remember the conversation Jesus had with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? She's all concerned with where is the proper place to worship? And Jesus says, salvation is from the Jews. It is from Zion. Then do you remember what he tells her? It's not about a place, right? You're beginning to to worship the, the thing rather than the one who gave it to you. It's not about a place. It's about a heart issue. Those who truly worship God are those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Salvation comes from the Jews. And what does she discover at the end of this? Sir, I hear Messiah is coming. He's here with you now, is what Jesus tells her. The truth about our existence in this world is that we are far off from righteousness. We are stubborn. stubborn. Our sin has driven a wedge between us and God, and only God can overcome that. He has done this in the sending of his Son to stand in our place, receiving the wrath we deserve in order that all who repent of their sins and trust in him might be brought near to him. Dear ones, hear this today. This is the grace of God. The implication is that in his holiness, God did not have to bring his righteousness near But because he's merciful and gracious, he does. Remember the definitions of those words, right? Mercy and grace, undeserved favor, not getting what we do deserve. Without understanding God and his holiness and his righteousness, without understanding God's justice and his hatred for sin and the sinner, the scripture says, we cannot understand fully the grace and mercy of God when he says he brings his righteousness near to us. The stubborn of heart, those who foolishly worship idols, God brings his grace near to us. In God's grace and his mercy, he plucked us from the stream of condemnation and made us his own in Christ Jesus, who stood in our place, taking the wrath of the Father that we deserve. We receive the Holy Spirit as a means of confirmation through God's word that we are his. So what do we do with these truths this morning? Believer, you are to spend your days exalting the triune God. You're to be disciple-making people. You're to be disciples-making disciples because that is what he has left us for. In that, in obedience to that, there is joy and fulfillment. Up underneath that are all the truths that he asks us to follow. We're to love one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to comfort one another. We're to confront one another. We're to equip one another. We're to go and make disciples together. And in this, we are exalting the triune God because God says, here is my way in Christ Jesus You are made my kid, and in this way, in this this path of discipleship and obedience to me, you are exalting me. That's why it goes far beyond what we do here on a Sunday morning. You see, we come together on a Sunday morning exalting the triune God. We're we're saying, yes, God, together we believe what you say, and, and, and we are telling you, yes. And we enjoy you, and we are fulfilled by you, we are satisfied by you in Christ Jesus We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We don't chuck that when we walk out the door. We're living lives together. 
in our culture, our church culture, we call it doing life together. It's kind of a weird saying, but we're living these lives of discipleship to the glory of God. We're exalting the triune God when he says, go love your neighbor, go love that other person in the church, go serve them, go minister to them, and, and we're being served, and we're being taught, and we're being discipled, and we're discipling others. God says, you want joy, fulfillment, obey me, and in that is exalting me. For those who may be questioning where you stand with God, maybe thinking, I don't like what I'm finding about, out about the God of the Bible. He seems awfully self-centered to me. And my response to that is, well, how awfully self-centered of you. I say that with every amount of humility, recognizing the same is true of me. The humility of redemption is realizing that I am not worthy of God's love and that he has every right to wipe me from the face of the planet because of my sin. The only difference between you and me and anyone who has trusted Christ has nothing to do with them, but everything to do with Christ. Everything with God, bringing his righteousness near unto us because we are afar off from his righteousness. That's you this morning. If, if you're standing afar off from righteousness, would you, would you speak with me this morning? I would love to share that with you. Would you speak to the elders and the pastors and just even turn to somebody who sit next to you and say, help me understand this. There'd be nothing more exciting than to show you that God has brought his righteousness near and you can repent, you can turn from your sins and trust in Christ's death and resurrection alone to be reconciled to him. And as the author of Hebrews says, we can draw near to the throne of God in boldness because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Would you do that? Would you come and see me or talk to one of those men today? If you're a believer, let's exalt the triune God. Would you pray with me? Lord, what a joy it is to worship you and to understand that gospel living, knowing you through Jesus Christ, brings about an exaltation in our heart, a seeking of forgiveness when we fall short, and Lord, that living in your way brings delight and joy and brings exaltation to your name. Help these truths to sink deep into our hearts, Lord, today, even as we consider them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.